0: Alright, I want to welcome everyone this morning to our continuing study of Matthew's Gospel. If you have your Bibles today, please turn to Matthew chapter 1. If you could, if you're sitting in the back, if you could give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down if you can hear me. Thumbs up. Alright, let's pray together before we open God's Word together this morning. Father, we come to You today. Lord, You tell us in Your Word that every soul in this room was made by Christ and for Christ. You tell us that Jesus is the beginning and end of all things and that in Him, everything that exists will be summed up In a great consummation. Lord, You tell us in Your Word that You have given Your Holy Spirit to Your church. To declare the things of Christ. To lift up Christ. To glorify Christ. Lord, we ask for the Spirit that exalts Jesus to fill this place this morning. Come, Holy Spirit, and exalt the Son of God in our midst. Come do your perfect work, Lord, and lift up the name and the glory and the honor of Jesus. Lord, we pray for every heart in the room today that you would reveal Christ, that you would lift up Christ, that you would grant a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. Lord, some of us in this room have known Christ for years and even decades. And we come this morning in humility and we declare, Lord, that we have not arrived. We're nowhere near exhausting the depth of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Come reveal our Savior to us this morning, Lord. Remind us that we have all eternity To worship the Son of God. Lord, some in this room have recently bowed the knee to Jesus as their King. Lord, we pray for new believers this morning. That You would encourage every heart. That the One that they have chosen to worship is eternal in glory. That they will never exhaust His beauty. That there's more than enough in Jesus to satisfy every human heart for all eternity. Come exalt the Son of God. Lord, we pray for those in this room who do not bow the knee, who do not trust in Jesus Christ, who do not know the Son of God. Holy Spirit, we pray that You would reveal their King to them this morning. That You would reveal Jesus, the exalted Lord of all. God, we ask that we would leave this place today worshiping the Son of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Matthew chapter 1. And I want to pick up where Ryan left off last week. He gave us an introduction to Matthew's Gospel. And one of the things that Ryan pointed out is one of Matthew's aims. One of his goals in this Gospel is to present Jesus to the readers of this Gospel as God's chosen King, as the Messiah, the promised One of the Old Testament, the One that God promised would sit on the throne of David, the One who would reign forever and ever and ever. Matthew is attempting to lay out that Jesus is this King. Jesus is this Messiah. Jesus is this promised one. Now, historically we know that many, both before Jesus came and after Jesus was ascended, many came who claimed to be that promised one who claimed to be the Deliverer, who claimed to be the Messiah. And so simply claiming that Jesus is this promised King is not enough. It's not enough just to say that He's this King. And so Matthew seeks to answer this question. What gives this man named Jesus the right to lay claim to the throne of the universe? What gives Him such a right? What are His qualifications? What are His credentials? And so Matthew seeks to lay out proofs to demonstrate that Jesus is in fact this promised one. He is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. In the first two chapters of Matthew's Gospel, this theme sits at the very top. These first two chapters are written to specifically address this question. To, to specifically uh, serve as a defense of Jesus' kingship. By setting forth His credentials to reign on the throne of David. And so Matthew's argument in these first two chapters goes something like this. Jesus is uniquely qualified to be the king. Because Jesus is the Scripture Fulfiller. Jesus is qualified to be that promised Old Testament Messiah because Jesus is the Scripture Fulfiller. That's His Messianic credentials. And this argument runs through really the whole Gospel of Matthew But it's most concentrated in these first two chapters. These first two chapters revolve around five separate quotations of the Old Testament that are all introduced to us with a fulfillment formula. So I want us to read through these really quick and try to think Matthew's thoughts after him. This is who he's presenting to us. The Scripture Fulfiller. Matthew chapter 1 verse 22 we read these words and this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet and so this is his aim he does this again in Matthew chapter 2 verse 5For so it is written by the prophet. Again this happens Matthew chapter 2 verse 15 this was to fulfill the what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Do you see his goal here? He's, he's lining out the early uh, life of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, see, scripture fulfiller, quote an Old Testament text. He does it again. Matthew chapter 2, verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And then the last verse in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23 so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. One of the most concentrated sections in the entire New Testament of Old Testament texts quoted and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so I want to I want us to worship Jesus this morning. If you've never done this as the scripture fulfiller. This is his messianic credentials. What right does Jesus have to lay claim to the throne of David? His entire life is a fulfillment of the word of God. And that's an amazing thing to say about a human being. Is that man right there is a scripture fulfiller? The Word of God is summed up and fulfilled in the man, Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of all that God has spoken. He's the fulfillment of all that God has spoken. Now to get a little more specific to our text this morning, I want us to remember where we started last week in Matthew chapter 1 with a genealogy that showed us that Jesus is the son of David. That's how Matthew's Gospel started. Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. But what I want us to see is Matthew has more to say to us about Jesus' Davidic lineage. He's not done with that theme just yet. And so we're about to dive into our text together. I'll mention just a couple of more things. Matthew's version of the nativity of what we're going to read this morning, the birth of Jesus, the conception of Jesus, Matthew's version of this story is told from the perspective of Joseph. From the perspective of Joseph. Whereas Luke's version of the nativity is told from the perspective of Mary. And this is actually an intentional thing. It's an intentional focus on Joseph. And I'll tell you why. That genealogy that we dug into last week, it left us hanging just a little bit. Left us hanging just a little bit. You say, what do you mean? It showed us that that Joseph was a descendant uh, in the line of David, a direct descendant of David. But when we made the jump from Joseph to Jesus, that genealogy clearly showed us that Joseph was not the father of Jesus. In fact, the formula and that whole genealogy was so and so fathered so and so, so and so fathered so and so, all the way down, fourteen generations, fourteen generations, fourteen generations, and to that very last piece, Jesus was fathered by no one. Jesus was born, begotten from Mary. Joseph was not the father of Jesus. Matthew chapter one, verse sixteen. Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So our question is this, how can we trace Jesus' lineage to the Davidic line if Joseph was not his daddy? How can we trace his lineage to the Davidic line if Joseph was not his daddy? Verse 20 in our passage this morning is very significant in highlighting Joseph, son of David. We're used to thinking in these terms, Jesus, son of David. Our passage this morning is going to highlight something a little different. Joseph, son of David. Joseph, son of David. And this nativity of Jesus told from Joseph's perspective, it's intentional. It's intentional. Our passage today shows us How Joseph, the son of David, takes Jesus into his family and adopts him as his own son. Joseph will give Jesus his name, his earthly name, and he will raise him as his very own son in the Davidic line. Let's read our text together this morning. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. This is the Word of God to Grace Community Church this morning. So our passage tells us that Joseph the son of David took the mother of Jesus as his wife. He names Jesus Christ And he raises him as his very own son. This is Jesus' childhood raised in the Davidic line. I want us to start this morning in verse 18. Matthew draws our attention in verse 18 to the birth of Jesus Christ. That word birth is literally the word the beginning. The genesis of Jesus Christ. This is a story of Jesus's origin. So think about this question. What are his credentials? What right does this king have to lay claim to the throne of heaven and earth? And one of the ways that Matthew is going to lay out Jesus' credentials is he's going to Reveal Jesus' origins, Jesus' genesis, Jesus' beginning. And truly, never ever did anyone enter this world the way this king entered this world. Never happened before, it'll never happen again. He is uniquely qualified to be the Messiah by his origins. By his beginnings. So we're going to go there in just a moment. Let's start this morning with this betrothal of Joseph and Mary. We're told in, in, in verse 19 that during this betrothal, verse 18, during this betrothal, that something happened during this betrothal that changed that change the world forever and ever and ever. In the midst of the betrothal of Joseph and Mary. Let's talk about this betrothal first, and then we'll talk about this child in just a moment. We need to do a little bit of background work when we jump into this text. The Jewish betrothal arrangement. There's significant differences in than our understanding, our modern Western practice of engagement. Okay, you, you run into some significant problems if you understand all that was happening here is Joseph and Mary were engaged. Betrothal was more than this. It was more than this. It was legally uh, considered a marriage. Joseph was legally um, Mary's husband. Mary, uh, Mary was legally Joseph's wife. They were married in every way minus the sexual union. Minus living and cohabitating together. They were legally husband and wife. They didn't live together and they didn't sleep together, but they were betrothed to be married. This arrangement was so strong in Jewish law that a betrothal, it was so bonding that it required either a death or a divorce to break this arrangement. Betrothal. Different than engaged today, not engaged in two weeks. Completely different arrangement here. They were considered husband and wife. It was during this period of betrothal that Mary was found to be pregnant. And Joseph knew that the baby was not his. And we see that in verse 18. Verse 18 tells us that something happened before they came together. That's a reference to the sexual union between a husband and a wife. It was before they came together. It was before they consummated the marriage with the sexual union. She was found to be with child. She was found to be pregnant. Now... For all of human history, there was only one conclusion. When an unmarried woman was found to be pregnant with a child. For all of human history, before and after, one conclusion. And that conclusion was this. This woman committed sexual immorality. And some man was involved committing sexual immorality as well. This was the only conclusion for all of human history and this is exactly what Joseph concluded, right? To get a baby, you need a man and a woman. You with me? Tracking. To get a baby, you need a man and a woman. And Joseph says, I know that did, baby didn't come from me. And his natural conclusion was that Mary had committed sexual Immorality. She was pregnant by sexual immorality. Now, during the betrothal period, the Mosaic law prescribed a penalty for sexual sin during this betrothal period, and the penalty was death by stoning. This will give you an idea of how serious God takes sexual sin prior to marriage, specifically in this betrothal period. If you have your Bibles, turn really quickly backwards with me to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy chapter 22. The law of God is found in verse 23. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Notice in verse 24 that that betrothed virgin is referred to as the neighbor's wife. It's a legal marriage under Mosaic law. So we have this severe penalty in God's Word for fornication, for sexual sin during this betrothal period of death. Death. God says, purge the evil from among you. This is God's law. Serious offense to God. Now, sometimes you'll hear it said that Joseph had the right to pursue this option with Mary. And the answer to that is yes and no. Yes and no. Yes, in the sense, if she would have been guilty... Maybe so. Yes, in the sense that the Old Testament prescribes it, but no in this first century setting. No in this first century setting. The historical evidence points to severe restrictions that the Romans had placed upon the Jews that they weren't free to deal out these capital punishments under Roman subjugation like they were in Old Testament Israel when they were free from foreign oppression. They were severely limited in carrying out the penalties of the law of Moses. The historical evidence tells us that that capital punishment under Roman subjugation without Roman authority was very rare. Very rare. And so let's understand Joseph's options here. The law of God speaks to this issue as an egregious sin, but the setting, the first century setting that Joseph finds himself in limits his response to this situation. And let's zone in on Joseph in verse 20. We're told three things about Joseph in verse 20. We're told that Joseph is a just man. A righteous man. Joseph is a righteous man. Now, that doesn't mean he's a perfect man, but that means he's a faithful man. If you follow Joseph around, the pattern and the practice of his life would be to submit to the law of God, to obey the law of God. He's a righteous man, a just man. And when he would be found to disobey the law of God, the pattern, the practice of Joseph's life would be to confess his sin and to repent and turn to obey the law of God. He was a righteous man, a just man. Not a perfect man, but a faithful man who lived According to God's law. And even as our passage in verse 24 and 25, even as our passage closes, you see this character coming out in Joseph. The, the angel makes known the will of God to Joseph. And what does he do? He immediately obeys the Word of God. He's a righteous man. That's what righteous men and women do. God speaks through His law. God speaks through His Word and righteous men and women say, Yes, Lord, I submit to You. You are the King and I am Your servant. Joseph is a just man, a righteous man. Second thing we're told about Joseph in verse 20 is that this righteous man is unwilling to put Mary to shame. He's unwilling to put her to shame. Now, understand this. He thought she was guilty, but he's unwilling to shame her. And that gives you a glimpse into the heart of a righteous man. There's no vengeance in there. There's no vengeance in his heart. He thinks that he has been wronged, even greatly wronged, fornicated against. In this betrothal period by his own wife. But there's no vindication. There's no disposition in his heart. I'm going to pay you back. He's unwilling to shame Mary whom he thinks is guilty. And I want you to see this beautiful picture coming together in Joseph's character. That this righteous man is also merciful. He loves mercy. He obeys the law of God, and he does the law of God, and yet he loves mercy. He's a man of compassion. Now think about how beautiful that is, that a man like that would be the imperfect earthly example of Jesus Christ. A man who lives out Matthew 6, 8. A man who does justice and loves mercy. This is a beautiful blending together in the heart of Joseph of the character of God. This is what God is like. God is righteous and God is merciful. Joseph is righteous and Joseph is merciful. We have a great example here to follow in the character of Joseph. Charles Spurgeon comments on this text and he says, Brothers, when we have to do a severe thing, let us do it tenderly. Let us do it tenderly. Let our justice be tempered with mercy. Justice tempered with mercy. The third thing that we're told about Joseph in verse 20 is that he he resolved to divorce Mary quietly. This divorce was a just response to the sin that that he supposed she committed. This was a just response. And yet the quietly, or literally the secretly, this was Joseph's kindness to Mary. His unwillingness to shame her. To blast her character. To pursue the full extent of the punishment of the law of God. This is his plan. This is what he's resolved to do to break off this marriage union. And then, in verse 20, we're told that the angel of the Lord intervenes an angel of the Lord intervenes this angel is unnamed in Matthew's account but the angel that comes to Gabriel uh, to to Mary in Luke's gospel is named Gabriel some messenger of God intervenes into this situation he is about to divorce the virgin that is pregnant By supernatural means, angel comes into his dream, invades his thoughts at night, and reveals the will of God to Joseph. Joseph is is about to be asked to believe something extraordinary. And so God clearly, supernaturally, reveals His will to Joseph. This is a kindness of God. This is the kindness of the Lord. In Matthew, the angel comes to strengthen Joseph's faith. In Luke's Gospel, the angel comes to strengthen Mary's faith. This is the kindness of God. This couple is in a situation that no other human beings have ever faced. No other human beings have ever been placed in this situation that all of a sudden there's a baby in the womb Of a virgin. And so God comes in tender kindness, extraordinary grace, and makes His will clearly known to strengthen their faith. In this dream, Joseph is instructed by the angel that the child in Mary's womb is not from immorality. Verse 19 and 20 the child in her womb is conceived by the Holy Spirit. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This is the astonishing claim of the Incarnation of the Son of God. And so I want us to understand the claim this morning. We are being told, we are being asked to believe, we are being commanded to believe that the body of Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Never ever did another enter this world the way that Jesus entered this world. This is his pedigree. This is Jesus's credentials to the throne. He was born of a virgin. All of human history lined up in this massive crowd. Raise your hand if you can meet these credentials and one man raises his hand. That's me. Jesus Christ, born of a virgin. He had no human father born of a virgin, supernaturally conceived in the womb of Mary. Now I want us to press in this morning into a mystery that's deeper than the Pacific Ocean. This truth about Jesus Christ, we could drown in this truth. It's so beautiful. It's so rich that that this conception of the Son of God in the womb of the Virgin, how in the world can we place this in our finite minds? How can we we understand what's being claimed here? The claim is the one without beginning has a genesis. The one without beginning has a beginning. This is the claim of the incarnation. I'll say it in another way. The One who wrote Genesis now has a Genesis. The Eternal Son of God has taken on a new finite human nature. God the Eternal Son has become God the Incarnate Son. The Divine Son of God is now the God-Man. Fully God and fully man. Fully God in that He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He has no human father. Fully man, and that He was birthed by His mother the same way every other human baby is birthed. He's really God, and He's really man. 100%, 100%. Fully God and fully man. Now, take a step back. Are you beginning to see the unique credentials, the unique qualifications of Jesus Christ? There is none like him. There is none like him. God and man. The church has long referred to this deep mystery as the hypostatic union. I want that word to be precious to you the hypostatic union. You say you're going to have to break that one down for me. Hypostatic union. This beautiful claim that these two natures, the divine and the human, have united together perfectly and eternally in one person, Jesus Christ. Two natures, one person. The human nature and the divine nature in one person, Jesus no one ever entered this world like Jesus entered this world. There is none like Him. There's a game that I have played with my daughter since she was a little girl, and we she she's really competitive and she loves this game. She gets serious. She don't want to get this game wrong. And I've tried to drill this into her since she was a little girl. Uh, about the trinity these truths about the trinity and i ask her two questions over and over i mix up the order and we go faster and faster and faster until one of us messes up and the questions are this how many gods in the godhead there's one god is her answer how many persons in the godhead there's three persons How many gods? One. How many persons? Three. How many persons? Three. How many gods? One. How many gods? How many persons? How many persons? How many gods? She leans forward so serious. She's not going to get that wrong. You can do that same thing with the doctrine of the incarnation. How many natures in the person of Christ? Two. Now, every other person that you have ever met, the answer is one. A human nature only. A finite nature only. But this question gets a completely different answer. How many natures in the person of Christ? Two. The human and the divine. But how many Christ? How many persons in Christ? One. How many natures? Two. How many persons? One. How many persons? One. How many natures? Two. This is the beautiful claim of the incarnation. The hypostatic union of Jesus. He's the God-man. There is none like Him. You try to explain Him with any created categories, you will definitely 100% get it wrong every single time. Why? Because there's none like Him. He doesn't fit your finite created categories. He busts them wide open. He has no beginning, yet a beginning. In the womb of Mary, the angel tells us that these two natures of Jesus Christ were united together, never to be separated, fully God, fully man, for all of eternity. Think about how holy that moment is not just united together for a little bit of time and then separated back apart, that what happened in the womb of Mary was eternal. There was an eternal union that took place in the womb of the virgin. Conception by the Holy Spirit. The God-man was conceived. This is amazing. This is amazing. Fully God. Fully man. Now, I want to ask you this morning, can you, can you wrap your mind around this? Can you wrap your mind around this? And I was going to say, can you fit this in your peanut mind? But I don't want to offend anybody. I'm not trying to say you're, you're dumb. I'm just saying we're finite. There's a certain amount of space we got up here. How do we fit this stuff in? Can you wrap your mind around this claim? Fully God, fully man, none like Him. Angels worship Him and Mary nursed Him. Do you see? No beginning yet beginning. Can you wrap your mind around the fullness of deity dwelling in an unborn infant body? It's exactly what Colossians 2.9 says about Jesus Christ. The fullness of deity dwells in Him bodily. How? How in the world can the infinite dwell in the finite? The limitless God in this infant child? Can you wrap your mind around this claim? Do you see the mystery here? Do you see the majesty here? Can you wrap your mind around this little baby That this infant unborn Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. This little baby that knows weakness is the exact imprint of the nature of God, the radiance of the glory of God. Fully God. And fully man. Is it any wonder that upon the birth of Jesus Christ, majestic angels began to worship? Glory to God in the highest! Glory to God in the highest! He's here, He's born. None ever entered this world like Jesus entered this world fully God and fully man, conceived of a a virgin. Now, do you see the mystery here? Do you see how there's enough here uh, to drown in? It's like a bottomless ocean. The beauty and the depth of this glorious claim of this glorious Christ. This is a mystery that we believe by faith. This is a mystery that we believe by faith. You say, what do you mean? I mean this. You cannot rationalize your way to a virgin birth. You cannot. It defies created categories. You cannot rationalize your way to a virgin birth. It comes by revelation. You receive it by faith. God has revealed it in His Word. Turn really quick to Hebrews chapter 11. I want to give you a phrase. To consider this morning. Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 3. Four words. Brothers and sisters. By faith we understand. By faith we understand. That verse goes on to say. That the universe was created by the word of God. That's what a Christian does. A Christian understands by faith. We receive this mystery of the incarnation of the virgin birth by faith. Don't get this backwards. A Christian is one who believes and yet pursues understanding. The Christian life is faith seeking understanding. By faith we understand. It's not the other way around. I believe because I understood it. I believe because I figured it out. I believe because I rationalize my way to this position. By faith, we understand. We take God at His Word, and then we seek to understand it. Then we seek to place it in our finite uh, categories of ration and logic. By faith, we understand. Our starting point and the starting point of the Gospel is faith, not skepticism. Do you understand that? We don't live in a world uh, that, that, that the revelation of God has been sucked out of. That we would have, our starting point would be neutrality and skepticism. And yeah, if you can prove it to me, sure, I'll believe it. We live in a world that God has spoken into. The Creator of this world has made known His Word. And He's telling us in this passage that Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus was fully God and fully man. And I want to encourage you this morning make your starting point be trust. Stake your life on the Word of God. Start from trust in God's Word, not skepticism towards the Word of God. And I want to warn you about two foundations that you build your life on. Every person has to make this choice. Now, you're either going to stake your life on human speculation or divine revelation. That's your only options. The very best that the modern world can give you, scientific study, ration, and logic, at the end of the day, if you take out God's revelation, at the very best, all it is, is human speculation. And there will be many who build their life on the wisdom of this world. And I want to encourage you to build your life, to stake your life on the Word of God. Trust the Word of God. Trust the Word of God. How do we deal with mystery in Scripture? We deal with it by faith-seeking understanding. The takeaway the take here about the virgin conception of Jesus. This is a gospel claim. This is a gospel claim. This is not something that, that Christians, good Christians can disagree over. You know, well, my Jesus had an earthly father and your Jesus didn't have an earthly father, but we believe so many of the same things and Jesus taught a lot of good things. Uh-uh. Uh uh-uh. uh. You reject the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, and there is no gospel left. You strip him of his supernatural origin, and you're stripping away these credentials and his qualifications to sit on the throne of David forever. So I want us to understand this claim well. Your king. Had no human father. Get to know Him. Worship Him. Bow before the One who is conceived in the womb of the Virgin. Now in this dream, the angel reveals to Joseph the name of the baby that's in Mary's womb. And I, I, I was thinking about this just a moment ago of how much joy and urgency there had to be when this angel was dispatched with this message that the Savior is here. Go tell Him. Go tell Joseph to call His name Jesus because He's going to save His people from their sins. The promised one is not the promised one anymore. He's here. He's here. He's in the womb of Mary by supernatural conception. The angel makes known the name that Jesus is to have. His name is Jesus. Call His name Jesus. Now that name, the Hebrew version of that name, Yeshua, a common Jewish name that meant Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. How beautiful is this that the Son of God incarnate That His name, His very name, would mean Yahweh saves. The name reveals the nature of the child. This child is a Savior. He's sent with a mission to save, to bring salvation. We're told that call His name Jesus in verse 21. For He will save His people from their sins. The mission of Jesus is salvation. He will save His people. This is so important to drill down in our hearts that the incarnation is more than wonder and amazement. There's a reason why this is happening. There's a reason why these two natures have been joined together in this one Christ. And the Bible says for salvation, for us and for our salvation. Call his name Jesus. He's going to save his people from their sins. Now Matthew's goal is to present the kingship of Jesus. And true kings in all of Scripture, they have to do the work of kings. You see, kingship in the Bible is not just a title that someone has beside their name. They have to do the work of a king. And the work of a king in the Old Testament was to to deliver Israel from her enemies. And so if he really is the the king, if he really is the Messiah, then he has to do the work of Messiah. He has to deliver uh, his people from their enemies. Now, that's exactly what Israel expected the Messiah to do. To deliver Israel... From her enemies, which at the time the first century happened to be Roman subjugation. They are under Roman rule. They are trusting in and eagerly expecting a Messiah to deliver them from the Romans, from their enemies, right? And yet, the angel doesn't say, call his name Jesus. He will save his people from the Romans. The angel zones in and says, Call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. Apparently, the people of God have a bigger enemy than the Romans. Apparently, the real enemy is sin itself. And apparently, this this holy child has been, been sent On this rescue mission, this salvation mission to deal with the real enemy, the greatest enemy, sin. We're told in these angels' words that the conception of this little boy in Mary's womb was a declaration of war on sin. That conception in her her womb was an assault on sin. The real enemy... Of the people of God. Many of you have heard this, but I want us to hear it again. The gospel is a message of salvation from sin. It's a message of salvation from sin. Not salvation from circumstances. Don't get this backwards. It's not call His name Jesus. He will save His people from financial trouble. Call His name Jesus. He will save His people from whatever sickness they're struggling through right now. Now those things are gloriously true in a future state. But there's a reason why the Bible zones in right here that what we need more than anything else is salvation from sin, not circumstances. Do you realize that you can be among the most blessed people in this world By being saved from your sins and yet die of cancer and have negative $57 in your bank account. And the Bible calls you blessed if your sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. We need salvation from sin. This is our greatest need. And I want you to understand that. Your greatest need is to be saved from your sin. Don't underestimate... The danger that you are in right now because of sin. The Bible talks about this in a comprehensive way. That sin is going to destroy you comprehensively. And you need someone to save you from sin comprehensively. You say, what do you mean? The Bible tells us that sin has already killed you spiritually. That you have a dead spirit outside of Jesus Christ because of sin. The wages of sin is death. Unregenerate humanity is dead in their transgressions and sins. Don't underestimate sin. It's already killed you. It's already put you in a spiritual coffin. It's already happened. It's past tense. Don't underestimate sin. Don't underestimate the power of sin to conquer you presently and progressively. It's been said about sin. It'll take you further than you ever wanted to go. It'll keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay. Sin is a deceiver. It's the weapon of the kingdom of darkness. This is at work right now in your life. You need salvation from sin's power. And don't underestimate where sin will drag you forever. The Bible is clear about this that sinners, apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, will be eternally, forever, never ending punishment as a just penalty for their sin. Sin will kill you forever and ever and ever. Don't you see? More than anything else in your life, you need salvation from sin. Salvation from sin. Comprehensive salvation from sin. And this is just what Jesus came to do. This is exactly why Jesus was sent. Call His name Jesus. He will save His people from their sins. The Bible tells us how Jesus has provided this comprehensive salvation from sin for his people. Jesus was, de- he delivered us from the penalty of sin by his atoning death on the cross. This is already a finished work of Jesus Christ. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is done for the believer. He has delivered you forever from the penalty of sin, but it doesn't stop there. Comprehensive salvation Jesus gives. Jesus is delivering His people right now, presently and progressively, from the power of sin, by the power of His indwelling Spirit. He lives in His people. The resurrected Jesus has broken the power of sin and the life of His people and we are being progressively and presently delivered from sin's dominion in our life. He's the Savior. He saved us from the guilt of sin, the punishment of sin. He is saving us right now from the power of sin. And we are promised that Jesus will deliver His people from the presence of sin Forever. Jesus promised us that he would, he would grant to us a resurrection of life, a resurrection of glory, that we would be raised from the dead, incorruptible bodies, forever and ever and ever, without sin, without temptation, without suffering. Call his name Jesus. He will comprehensively totally and eternally save His people from their sins. Jesus came to destroy your strongest enemy. There's no one else able to deal with sin. Jesus can destroy it. Comprehensively. Call His name Jesus. He will save His people from their sins. The angel tells Joseph, That Jesus came to save a specific people, His people. And I want you to notice the limited phrase there. Jesus came to save His people, not all people. And even that phrase, God with us, that's limited. It's God with us, not God with all. Jesus is coming to do a work for a limited, specific group of people. Who are they? Who are they? These are those who are chosen by grace. Before the foundation of the world, the free grace and mercy of God puts you in the category of Jesus' people. His people. Now, sometimes the doctrine of election can be something that we recall at and the only remedy for it is the Word of God. Submitting to the Word of God bowing to the Word of God. Now I want you to notice this here. Before one drop of His precious, holy, atoning blood was spilled on the cross of Calvary, there was a group of people that the angel said while He was still in the womb of Mary. They are His people. And He's going to save them from their sins. Chosen by grace before the foundation of the world, His people. These are those who will be washed by the blood of Christ, those who will be conformed to the holy image of the Son of God. These are those who will be comprehensively saved from their sin, saved from the penalty of sin, saved from the power of sin. They will be saved from the presence of sin forever, His people. These are those who worship Jesus. As Emmanuel. Those who worship Him as God with us. Those who trust in Jesus for salvation. Those who hear that announcement. Call His name Jesus. He will save His people from their sins. Who are His people? It's the ones who say, I trust in this Savior. This glorious Son of God. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Jesus was sent for you, His people, to destroy your sin. To take it away forever. To break the back of your strongest enemy. Your sin is no match for your Savior. Call His name Jesus. He will save His people from their sin. We're told in verse 22 that we're coming full circle. This has always been God's plan. This announcement is new to Mary and Joseph, but it's not new in Holy Scripture. This has been foretold. This is not something that God has just changed His mind. This is God's, something that God has prophesied about from the very beginning. Which is why Matthew turns in verse 22 and we read this. All this. All that stuff took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah 7.14, which says this, Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus Christ is a scripture fulfiller he is the one that all the prophets testified about jesus christ the fulfillment of the revelation of god ryan mentioned to us last week hebrews chapter one in times past god spoke to us by the prophets but in the last days god has spoken to us in his son he is the full and final revelation of god He is the Scripture Fulfiller. Matthew tells us that He is the prophesied Emmanuel. God with us. That means that Jesus is the new temple. No more temple in Jerusalem where the presence of God dwells among His people. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus Christ is the presence of God in the midst of His people. To such the degree that when you see Jesus Christ, you see the presence of God bodily. The fullness of deity dwelling bodily in the Son of God. He is Emmanuel. He is Emmanuel. And I don't know anything more encouraging to leave you with this morning than reminding you that if your trust is in Jesus Christ, God is with you. Jesus is Emmanuel. God is with you. And I want you to think about that. What could be the greater blessing to wake up to today than the blessing that the the God who made heaven and earth, the God who authored my redemption is with me in Jesus Christ. That's the Emmanuel claim. God is with us. This little baby, named Emmanuel, grew up to be a full-grown man. And by the time we get to the end of Matthew's Gospel, this full-grown Jesus, full-grown Emmanuel, made made a promise to His people. And He told us this, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. God is with us. God is with us. Jesus is Emmanuel. Your Savior, your King is Emmanuel. He's not God against us. He's not even God merely for us, as though He were distantly for us. He is God with us. He is God dwelling with us. He is Jesus, Emmanuel. Never to leave us. Never to forsake us. He will be with us always to the end of the age, and his mission will never be defeated in the life of his people. He came to save his people from their sins. In closing, I want to remind you that it is not enough to be religious, it's not. You have to put your trust in this Jesus who was sent to save you from your sins. You can't just attend a church service. You can't even just amen a sermon. You have to trust in this Christ. You have to trust in Him to save you from your sins. It's not enough to be religious and it's not even enough to have good thoughts about Jesus. Positive thoughts about Jesus. That you like what Jesus says. That you like what Jesus teaches. You must believe that this baby in the womb of this virgin is nothing less than God with us. The full deity of Jesus Christ, the only one qualified to save sinners. Let's pray. Lord, we lift up our souls to you today and we ask that you would cause the word of Christ. To dwell richly within us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.